as a founder, you love to build stuff yourself in the beginning. But then, like, potentially, then you're on the hook, right? You're on the hook to maintain this. You're on the hook to, like, look after it, make some updates. And that is not ideal. So, like, the sooner you can onboard the team to, like, take over, the better. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm excited to have a chat with Bogdan Makazak. He's the founder of Digital Genius, and I'm excited to share with him today. Welcome to the show. Excited to be here. So the first question I like to ask my guests is, tell me a little bit about your background story and how you come up with the idea to build your product. Yeah, so essentially I was at the university and I met my co-founder, Dmitry, uh, back then. And it was originally his idea. It started with his idea. He was developing a, a feedback management platform uh, where essentially uh, in the restaurant or in the hotel, you'd have a little banner that would say, have any feedback, text this number. Uh, that was that was his project, that was his idea. And um, it was going okay. Uh, at the same time, I was working on some other uh, startups and, and we just collaborated a lot, but we were working on separate projects at that time. Uh, and none of our projects really like, at that point exploded. I think we did like 10 different startups, most of them failed at that time. Um, at the same time, we were getting involved with this accelerator in London called The Bakery. Um, and one of the co-founders of The Bakery, Alex, he, he called Mitri up and he was like, you know that feedback management system you have where people SMS their feedback? Can they reply? And Mitri was like, yeah, sure, you can reply too. And he's like, great, we have like a great project with BMW for you. And that was the start. So essentially, BMW was launching their electric cars, and that was eight or nine years ago, way before you know Tesla was popular, before people knew anything about how it works. So they were looking for some tech to help them in their marketing campaigns to educate the audience on how how far you can go on a single charge, where do you charge it, etc. Uh, so we then uh, pitched that to BMW together, and that's when I joined Dmitry um, in our endeavor, and we essentially had our first customer on. Well, back in the day, it was probably one of the first few chatbots on SMS before the chatbots became really cool. And that's how we started. Since then, it evolved, and we had a little bit of a pivot at some point. Uh, but that was, yeah, that was our start. That's exciting. So, so you're going to college, basically, and well, me, your co-founder, and you're not from London, so you moved to London to go to college, or, or you were already there. Yeah, I was. I came to the UK when I was 14 to study here, um, and yeah, and then in in university here, I met my co-founder. We actually were at different universities, but at some random, really random tech event, 
there was one guy speaking Russian, another guy speaking Russian. Somebody thought they should talk to each other. And that's how me and got introduced to each other. Um, originally, I'm from Ukraine. And uh, yeah, I came here to study. And then in university times, I was doing a number of different uh, entrepreneurship like projects, clubs. And me and Dmitry were like just in parallel jamming on weekends at some co-working space working on the new thing that is probably going to fail again like so we're just like shipping out lots of different things together that's awesome yeah i think that's the thing people don't realize to, to get a business outdoor many times as founders we go to a, many ideas until you find that one that works and just the exercise of keep building something and, and building an x-wing that, that makes a real difference but bmw is your first customer how, how was the experience that that's a, a big head start <laughs> yeah yeah i think i mean again like you mentioned before that had start we had like probably more than 10 other ideas that were completely disastrous. Um, BMW was great. I mean, and this was, again, thanks to Accelerated Bakery. So essentially what they do now is they they take big brands um, and their marketing briefs and they match that with different tech, uh, mainly startup tech. Um, and most of those brands are big. Uh, you know, we had BMW first and we had Panasonic soon after. Um, I mean, it was it was good. I mean, we, we were young. We didn't really know what we were doing. We just like, what does it take to make it successful? Like, we'll do whatever it takes. But we didn't even realize, you know, BMW, you know, was a big deal in enterprise sales. It was like, fine, cool. Let's 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 make it work. <laughs> I see that in myself too. When you look back. So many times you're kind of naive and I feel like that's also kind of necessary to be successful. You don't really know like what you're doing, you're doing the work. And, and I think it's a trait that entrepreneurs have, being naive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think, I mean, the fact that we were young in a way, it was to our advantage because like, like you might be even naive to, to think this is like too complicated. This is impossible. Like you just do it because you just have lots of energy and you don't have the experience to tell you this is going to be difficult. Obviously, there were some mistakes made along the way as well. But um, yeah, no, I think being uh, naive in the way of just doing things is, is really key to any kind of entrepreneurship project. Yeah, for sure. So you, you told me that the, the product pivot a little bit later on. So what is the product today and what problem do you guys solve? Yeah, so today we are making online shopping a seamless experience using conversational AI. So think chatbots, but on steroids specifically built for e-commerce. Let's say as a customer, you bought something online and then you need to check where your order is you need to cancel your order or change your address or get a return label we can do all of that automatically for you in the chatbot and the difference between what we do and lots of other chatbots out there is uh, we have very deep integrations with e-commerce ecosystem so our chatbot is actually helpful it doesn't just like go in the loop saying like could you rephrase that or like here's an article for you to read uh, it actually performs refunds you know cancels orders uh, does investigations so uh, there's other components to it but that's like a very simple way to understand it yeah so how you go from making chatbot to bmw to making chatbot to e-commerce walk me through like when you realize you want to get into the e-commerce market over making chatbot for for those big brands 
Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's, it was a bit of a journey. So, um, and just to also add more context, we also had a third co-founder, Mihail, join us about a year later, and he was essentially running all things sales in the states. He got us uh, some some big customers in the states. Um, but what we quickly found out is, in marketing world, at least with the chatbots we were building, they were very much campaign driven. It's like even BMW, after like two years of running that campaign, that was it, the project was over. So there was no recurring revenue from that. Um, And the second part we realized is, especially back in the day, a little bit less now, but especially back in the day, to train a good AI, you needed a lot of training data, historical conversations. To make those like deep learning models work, you've got to have the data. And again, in marketing, like that would be some kind of new campaign that people want to run. There's no data for it because it's new. Um, so we instead pivoted to customer service because customer service is recurring, right? They keep on having those requests like year over year. And it has a vast amount of historical data. Um, so that was our first pivot. Uh, and we also moved away from a chatbot to more of an agent assist product. So imagine a customer service operation, hundreds of agents. Um, to make them more efficient, we would recommend to them responses to use and just send. Uh, and one of our first customers was KLM Airlines. They're still like a big power user of the product. They love those prompts. Um, but what we quickly found out later is, um, although it, it provided really good ROI for the guys like KLM and a couple others, for a lot of other companies, it was hard to measure the ROI. Like, yeah, the agents are a little bit faster, but how much faster are they? Like, does it actually make a, a big difference or is it just a nice to have? Um, and also, we were um, targeting any company that had a customer service operation that was also using Zendesk or Salesforce as their like help desk solutions. That was it. So it was very much like going out there and getting companies like financial services, banks, um, subscription companies, travel agencies. It was such a wide range of customers. Um, and we, we, we got a number of them quickly, but it was very hard to go to the second level of like doubling that amount of customers. And we were looking at different problems and everyone was kind of blaming everyone for this. Like it was like a product issue, it was a sales issue, it was like a customer success issue. Uh, But in retrospect, and that was the point when I got recommended to to read the book, Crossing the Chasm. Uh, Retrospect, I think we were missing the focus at that point. And um, so we had a bit of a change in the company. We had to downsize. It wasn't like a happy time. Uh, we went back to the drawing board. Uh, two of my co-founders had to step down. I became CEO. Originally, I was CTO of the company. And we were looking at like the core what we do and the product market fit. Uh, and we realized you know, we're selling to too many companies in too many different verticals. And for a lot of them, uh, a lot of those verticals, we got some innovators right now who are using the product and they're loving it. But then to get to the uh, rest of the market who need lots of references, um, it would be a difficult challenge because for them it was more like a nice to have. I mean, they have their customer service operation running right now. They're not losing their sleep over this problem. 
Whereas there were a couple of customers in our portfolio, specifically in e-commerce, that and I got a call from one of them like in September time telling me, um, look, we've got this massive backlog of unsolved cases. As, it's, it's a crisis. Can you guys come over to, like they're based in Switzerland, can you come over to our offices and help us solve the issue? So like we fly over, we look at this issue, we come up with the plan, and I understand like at the end of it, these guys are desperate, right? They're losing their sleep over this compared to all the other customers. And that was a customer in e-commerce. And there was like another one that had a very similar use case, a very similar problem. And what happens in e-commerce is you have those peaks, like we have now is Black Friday and Christmas. And for those peaks, you know, they have so much pressure across the whole business, but also in customer service. Sometimes they have to hire like triple the number of customer service agents for a couple of months just to help that peak. And that's a real challenge. So unlike other brands that are kind of growing at the most steady rate, you know, the e-commerce guys, they have these peaks, it's hard to predict things, and they're desperate. Um, and that's exactly what we needed. We needed to focus on a smaller segment, but that's of desperate um, customers. And that's what we did. And that's how we ended up with e-commerce. That's awesome. There's so much to unpack here. So let, let me try say everything that you say in, in a way that we can kind of make it clear for um, for our listeners. But but it's amazing story. So you guys start with we're gonna make AI chatbots for for those big companies because you got those customers as referrals from your incubator, and then from there you kind of got into. We're going to make this for everybody that, that needs. You got into customer service because you realized that was better than marketing. So it was a space down in trying to niche down. You're like always trying to figure out what's your ideal customer. Uh, but I really like what you say about we were still a nice to have. And that's the problem you're trying to solve. We, we, we don't want to be a nice to have. You want to be a pain killer, <laughs> you know? And, and when that, the customer, uh, call you and you went and you, then you realize, okay, this is the space where we can be a real pain killer. And then you explain why, like how they have demands that go high, demands that go lower. And I think, again, if you're building a SaaS, that's how you should think. How can I move from a nice to have to work with clients? I, again, I also love the word you use, they're desperate to work with me. And, and that's an, it's an amazing story. And another thing for people to realize, it's, you might not get it right in the first time. You kept going, you kept figuring it out. Like I believe moving to customer service was better than work with marketing. And then from there you did even another step. Uh, working with e-commerce is better than trying to work with everybody. Um, that's a, an amazing uh, experience of how you niche down and how you found product market fit. Because I mean, you're the CTO and I, I wanna dive down to the technology. I'm sure from day one, technology was amazing, but technology without the perfect positioning, it, it's it's not, gonna solve like a big enough problem so you can scale and grow your business, right? So you can rely only on technology. And that's kind of like what I would like to dive deeper on it. Like walking me through the process of designing, uh, prototyping and coding and the AI, figuring out like how to build that. Now you're the CEO, but you're like super involved in the building uh, as the CTO. Uh, and, and maybe you can even go to the for the three versions. I would like to hear version one of your AI product. And then let's talk about the customer. And I'll yeah. stop you if I want to, if I have questions in the way, but, but let's dive into the building of that product. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, absolutely, absolutely right in terms of summarizing of like, you might have the right product, but you might be selling 
to either the wrong market or too broad of a market, especially in the beginning. In the beginning, you need those desperate customers who look like, ask yourself a question. Are they losing their sleep over this problem? Yes or no? And normally it's an easy question to answer. And if you're not, you're building like a wrong thing right now. Well, not even you're not building the wrong thing, but you're, you're serving that to the wrong market right now. But yeah, to your question of uh, tech. So uh, yeah, really good question. It evolved a lot. It evolved a lot. I mean, in the beginning, when we had our first uh, like product with the likes of BMW and others, it was really basic. I mean, it, it had some basic AI into this, but it was mainly like keywords driven stuff. The AI tech wasn't that advanced back then. So you had to write down like lots of different variations of how somebody might ask a question, like how far can this go on a single charge? And yeah, there were some like cool synonyms and other features you could use, but it was so, so intensive. Um, and then when it wouldn't get it right, or like when they wouldn't respond, then you would have a human who would help it by actually selecting the right response and responding. So it was it was like AI chatbot, but with a, with a major human element behind it too. First version, very basic. And I think that's how you should build the first version. How long did it take it to build the first version? Three months. Three months. And then how did you solve that like problem of needing to have a human behind? Because many times when people are trying to build AI, they wanted to do everything. I know because I, I, I tried to do that too. And, and it just it didn't work because people didn't realize the limitations and couldn't live with, okay, we need, this is a, is a helper. It's not going to do everything yet. How, how did you solve that problem? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, like, you know, in a scrappy way, our the same engineers who are building the AI, they were also the humans behind it. Now, they would also reply to those messages manually. That was the start of way, just, you know, get, get it rolling, get it done. But then very quickly we realized, obviously, that's not scalable. And that's why another reason why we picked uh, customer service as our next uh, kind of iteration because in customer service you have all those agents right they're already there the, the company is already employing all those people to reply manually so when the AI doesn't respond to it we can just pass to all of those agents that was also a reason why we picked um, customer service to kind of Makes look sense. for the existing patterns in there yeah because they already had the people behind. So did yeah. you guys did kind of like a Wizard of Oz thing where the engineers kind of pre still pretend to be the AI or did you let the user know, okay, now you're talking to now, in, in the first instance, uh, they didn't know they were talking to a human. Now, there wasn't like an element to say, oh, now you're talking to a human. Yeah, that was the first version, yeah. That's cool because, again, that's another methodology, another strategy you can use to build your product. It's called the Wizard of Oz, where it's nobody knows what's happening behind the curtains. And so it looks like it's AI. It's still for the user. And they're like, oh, look, this is this AI is super smart. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you have to be careful with, with this stuff. Like, obviously, we, we, we did this like in, in small use cases for a limited number of time, like where... Like you need to bridge some gap, but you have to figure out some other things quickly. Like, you know, there are examples of, of companies out there uh, where uh, there was this story I read recently. I think it was, I don't remember the name of the company, but it was some sort of accounting and where it was all supposed to be AI, but it turns out like, they couldn't actually make the AI work and there were just like hundreds of um, <laughs> people in the Philippines, accountants in the Philippines, just actually you know doing all the work, pretending I was AI, and it was a horrible result as well. So like, you have to be careful, especially in the world with the, of AI, where like it's so 
um, hard to like understand how it works yeah. uh, and who's behind it. Like, I think, you know, the fake it till you make it then needs to be really careful. Um, you only do it, you know, when you know actually how you're going to bridge the gap. I agree. I agree. So l- let's move on to version two. So like, now you're building version two of the product. Yeah. So version two, uh, I, I was coding the AI engine myself for like a couple of months. And if we used the latest deep learning uh, algorithms back then, um, it took me, I think, again, something like three to four months to, to get it out. And uh, yeah, it was it was first used by by KLM as a customer for kind of servicing uh, prompts to their agents. Uh, and the first version I built, I think it, it was there for almost like a year or two uh, live until like we got um, a bigger team in house who like built a replacement for it and maintained it for some time. Um, and that's like one of the lessons I learned is, as a founder, you love to build stuff yourself. Uh, in the beginning, but then like potentially then you're on the hook, right? You're on the hook to maintain this, you're on the hook to like look after it, make some updates, and that is not ideal. So like the sooner you can onboard the team to like take over, the better. Yeah, for sure. As a founder, you want to replace yourself and then it it becomes a very, being building that product in the day-to-day, you probably can spend your time better other places. So, so yeah. t- tell me about like, where did you go to spend your time when you're able to not be like developing so much anymore? Like, h- how did you spend your time? Yeah, so I then went more into product and customers because I think that was the time when, you know, the product was used by maybe a few dozen customers at least. And there were questions they were raising about the ROI. Like some customers had amazing ROI out of the box, and some customers were not clear about the ROI. And you know, this is my baby. I need to solve this. And there were like mixed opinions in the in the overall team. You know, some were thinking um, we just need to build some analytics to measure the ROI. But then I I would just run out and spend some time with the actual users and you know, with some of our customers. And I realized, you know what, it's not so much the, the fact we don't measure the ROI. It's actually just a question, is it there? Like, is, are we actually saving that much time for the agents? Maybe not. Maybe not. So maybe we shouldn't be building some new analytics features. We should actually look at the core of the problem. Why are we not um, making them more efficient? Um, and and uh, m- most of the team actually disagreed with me back then. Like most of the management team disagreed with me. They're like, no, no, let's just build more analytics. There was a mix of really experienced guys we hired by that time. And I just like went, I kind of stepped out of the main process and like got a, a small team. Like we had maybe like 20 engineers back then, but I, I picked up like four engineers just for my own little project. So you know what, we're just going to build something like a new iteration of this because I think this is a fundamental problem to this. The rest of the company was like selling and like building the, the, the other product, the previous product, but we were like a small SWAT team building this new iteration, which is essentially what the product is now. Because yeah, and that turned out to be true. Like it wasn't a problem of lack of analytics, you know, it was just was not delivering the ROI, the agency's product. And that's how we ended up with a new version that was automation like focused and had lots of integrations. Because one of the key learnings I had from again spending time with the users is 
agents, customer service agents would spend lots of time in other systems. So the actual like response part was maybe the quickest part, but where they would spend a lot of time is just going to one system, clicking lots of buttons there, another system. And that was the time consuming part. So the way for us to improve the ROI was to add all those integrations and to make it automated. And that's what we did eventually. So did you ask the people what they need or you sit and analyze and you figure out what they need? So like, how did you, I, the I, I think it's G, the latter. So it's the latter, yeah. I think this is one of the um, tricks, like very often when you're building a B2B product, the customer or maybe your CSM team, they will be asking you things but they, they often don't have a, a big picture in their mind, right? They're asking for things that are um, small improvements to what you've built. Uh, I think as, as the founder who, who's building product, you gotta be there in the field. You gotta be there like meeting the users, observing the users um, and seeing it yourself because that's the only way to kind of get to the roots of what's going on and, 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 and make sure you have the right solution for it. For sure. I, I think the lesson here, it's like you as a founder, you, you listen to our customers, but you also look at what they're doing. And at the end of the day, you have to make a bet. Like, and, and your bet, like you say, was that we need a product that was different and that integrated. And you have even a hard time convincing everyone inside your company that, that that was the right bet. But I believe building product is about that. It's about what is the next bet that I want to make. You go and you understand, analyze the market, understand the better way that you can the problem. And then you come up with a solution for the problem. And then you make the bet. And then later, again, listen to your customers, like you say, they're going to help you enhance, they're going to help you you improve your product. But the big bet, like, this is yeah. where we're going, that it's, it's, it's you to make as the founder, that, that's your call to make. And, and if you if you're not courage enough to make the call and just keep making incremental incremental improvements, it's going to be very hard, uh, depending on the stage you are, to grow, especially when you're still trying to find product market fit. Because it, it was that bet that you made that got you guys to, to product market fit. Is that correct? Exactly. 100% correct. Yeah. And like, since then, we've been like on a very successful path because we, we product market fit-wise, we have really good metrics, and that was because we changed the product to some degree, um, added all those integrations that no one was really asking for. Right? That was just me seeing that. No one really was asking for. But also, the f and then focusing on e-commerce, those were the two things, the product and the market, essentially. But yeah, I think you summarized it really well. It's like the, the fundamentals, the big bad. Like, uh, the people are going to ask you for it. That's something you discover. It's a bit like an artistic process. You, you sometimes need to see what other people don't see and, and then come up with a solution for it. Or another analogy might be, you know, if I'm a doctor and I have a patient who is sick, yeah, I'm going to listen to, like, what he tells me about their symptoms. But just based on what they tell me, I'm not going to make my conclusion. You, know, you have to do some tests. You have to look inside. You have to look deeper than just what they tell you. Uh, very often they tell you what's on the surface, but you're the one who needs to dig deeper to get the root cause of what they're experiencing. Yeah, exactly. Because you you don't want to be solving this the symptoms and never go to the root cause of the problem. I, I love that knowledge too. So how did you fund the company throughout this whole process? I imagine that you got some money from the incubator. Tell me about funding. Yeah, funding-wise, this is where Mikhail and Dmitry 
they they stepped up very quickly in the company. Uh, I think the first round of our uh, angel investors was from Mihal's network. So Mihal's got a number of friends and colleagues in, in the States that raised money before and he reached out to them and they introduced him to a number of angel and early stage VCs and we raised something like two, two to three million in convertible notes um, to begin with. Um, and then, um, yeah, we had a Series A uh, where we raised about like 10 million roughly. Um, and that was that was Dmitri. He was he was pitching to lots of different VCs, and we got Salesforce as one of the investors, and um, a couple other uh, big names as well. Um, I think, unfortunately, at least like from what I've seen, like it's very hard to get in front of um, an investor if you don't have someone introduce you to them. Um, it, it is possible, but it's so much harder. So. If you can, like, try to build a network for it, uh, either other founders, other startups. Like, for example, right now I work from a WeWork these days. You know, how our company is remote, I come to WeWork, and I see some really talented entrepreneurs here building amazing products. And and uh, if I if somebody asks me, like, you know, can you introduce me to some of your investors? I say hell yes, because I love what you're doing, and that that's much easier way to get in front of someone than sending them a call the email. Makes sense. I think that's a great advice. Like network with other founders, especially founders that that raise money before, because you now know the, the investors. So, how did that money affect you guys? So, like especially after Series A, I have I haven't seen a lot of companies after Series A that where there's a lot of money coming in, and then you start to go in too many directions. So, like walk me through like how how, how it was like getting that the ten million dollars add to to your bank account. Yeah, yeah, I mean, kind of similar to what you're saying. So, <laughs> and if we also bring like the story about the product evolution, right? So our Series A was at the time when the product was that agent assist product uh, without any focus, complete lack of focus. You know, any company, you got some agents, all right, you're fit. Um, and so, yeah, that 10 million, uh, you know, quickly, got spent on lots of sales, marketing, some product as well, but produced very little results. Um, I think it was lesson number one was like the PMF wasn't exactly there at that point. Um, and before raising like that kind of Series A, um, you should collect more metrics. That was the lesson for me, for example. You should collect more metrics about your conversions, about your renewals. Um, to have a solid like understanding, yeah, the PMF is there. We've got the fundamentals. Now we can really like expand and grow. Um, and uh, then we had a small convertible note afterwards, which was like three million or so. Um, and we had way more results from that three million, like ten times more results from that three million <laughs> than we had from the original ten. So I think timing is really important. And like you mentioned, you could so easily burn the cash by doing just like a lot of things which on paper look right, right? You get your sales team, you get your marketing team, you invest into product. On paper, there's all good things to do. But if you look at the roots of what's going on, and it's a disaster, like raising a lot of money at the wrong time is, it can end up in a big disaster where you just 
throwing lots of cash, not meeting targets. Everyone's like unhappy, morale is low. Uh, and, and luckily, like, um, because at the same time as that was going on, I was working on the new iteration of the product and uh, I could see the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, I could see the future, I could see the root cause of the problem. But a lot of the companies at that point, you know, they fail off the Series A, they close down, that's it, that's the end of this journey. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, in our case, you know, we were, we were close to that. We were close to that, but then we turned things around in an amazing way, and now we're growing really fast. And yeah, that, but that was our near-death experience at some point. Like after Series A, after bonus like cash, uh, we were very close to kind of not making it. Yeah, because I guess that's kind of like what investors want. They want you to make it or break it. And it's very stressful being in that situation because there's a real chance you can break, especially if you were identified don't have product market fit yet. You were not ready to scale. And so like, looks like you found product market fit on another round after Series A, where we have only $3 million left. It's was, you said there was a layoff. So like things didn't went yeah. super well. And you're like, now is our chance. We have to find market fit right now. Is that how, how it went? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. And uh, I mean, it, it, it was happening at the same time where like by the time the series raised us from million, I already made some good progress on the new, pro- on, not the completely new product, but evolution of the product. Uh, so it wasn't just like, let's get some million and then figure things out. It's like we already figured out lots of things. Uh, so let's get this stream million to advance it. What we were lacking immediately is that focus, you know, focusing on e-commerce and, and having that desperate customer, not just the nice to have, but a must have solution. Um, and yeah, that's stream million, they kind of gave us some time to, to focus, uh, to to readjust the strategy, um, and uh, yeah, and uh, then we became break even like even very quickly because we our revenue started growing really quickly with the e-commerce focus. Uh, we didn't need to raise more money, and uh, we had like amazing growth in the last two years. The PMF was there, but I think I mean the key the key summary there is raising a lot of money when you don't have strong PMF could be a disaster. You gotta nail your PMF first before you raise a lot of money. Like now, like we, we're raising around right now. Now it's so easy. Now it's just like the fundamentals are there. The whole machine is just working. You're making some adjustments. Everyone's working hard. But when fundamentals are there, like, yeah, now the investors can be make it or break it. And we're going to make it because, like, the fundamentals are there. But when they're not there, you're really, really taking the gamble. And it only makes things more difficult. When you have more people on the team, when you have more expectations, it's only harder to figure out PMF. Because you, you have way more people between you and the end user. And, and there's so much things going on that you don't have enough you know, focus to look at the actual like product and, and the market. Uh, when you're smaller, you're more nimble, you're closer to your customer, that's much easier and you're more flexible. You know, you can change things. You can change the pr- some of the product features. You can change your pricing. You can change your market. But when you're trying to grow really fast with a huge, you know, amount of team behind you, you can't change things that quickly. You know, there's too many managers. There's too many processes. Um, so if anything, yeah, you know, raising a big round before you got PMF not only could be a disaster, but could also like distract you from getting the PMF. 
I think that's an amazing lesson. Thank you very much for sharing. Like, make sure you get to product market fit before you, you do a big raise. And I think like when you t you stay early, you uh, you figure out this is the bet I want to make and you say a lot of pushback. That's because you had a lot of money. That's why the company was big. And that's probably the, well, the reason why you're getting pushed back on that one feature, right? Is that correct to assume? Yeah, I mean, essentially, people were in denial, like, because like, it, it's very tough to like, face the reality when like, we just raised all this money. We have so many people, the, the CRO has this huge target and you come to them and say, you know what guys, fundamentally things are really flawed. So like, you're not going to reach your targets. The money we just raised, like, it's a bit pointless. Uh, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that hard reality. And so you just get a lot of pushback and people in denial say, you know what, we just need to build some analytics. You know, we'll, it's fine. It's okay. Just, just add some graphs. Just, <laughs> just show like a trend moving upwards somehow. Um, that's like the, 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 the easy solution that people are looking for. Hence, hence they're pushing back. Uh, if they had not had that pressure to deliver the results, if there wasn't so many people, so many managers, so many expectations, um, then they would be more receptive to kind of looking at the fundamentals. Makes sense. So one question I'd like to ask, and I think you're kind of like talking about that a little bit, but what is like the first oh shit moment that come to mind from the, from the early days of your, your SaaS? Um, I mean, one that immediately came to my mind, so with, with the new product, like the latest product we have, um, me and uh, our v VP of customer success, Borge, amazing guy, we, we, we go to a customer and they were the first customer who was using the, new, the, the latest product when everybody else was like on the, on the older product and this was like my, my latest baby with all the fixes, all the integrations part, right? And we go into review meeting, which was like a review of a renewal of their contract. And we sit in the meeting and the customer themselves on the whiteboard just puts the ROI in front of us, which was really good ROI. We didn't have to do anything. Like they just themselves like, yeah, amazing ROI. These are the numbers, good renewal sorted. And that was like the first time me and Bora looked at each other like, oh shit, yeah, it's, it's happening, it's working. Because all the meetings before that, we had to like come up with ROI ourselves you know, spend like weeks trying to like in the day to find an ROI somewhere where it was like impossible to find. Um, and, and that was, yeah, that was the beginning of the new era uh, where things were working. And then after that, we also then narrowed the focus to e-commerce um, and we started doing free pilots because that was not the test of your PMF. Do free pilots uh, and limit them in time from like 30 to maybe 60 days maximum. Um, and just see how many like convert from those three pilots. Um, and we had uh, like 95% plus conversion in our first year, which was like, shit, yeah, this, this, this is Whoa. working. Yeah. So, so, so you uh, give your product away for free and then you come back and say, hey, by the way, I have to pay now. And people are like, yes, sure, here's my money. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, we tell them in advance like that, like you have it for free, but then you have to pay later. And they're like, okay, sure, let, let us, let us, you know, start using the pilot. Um, and yeah, the conversion was amazing. It was basically just one pilot that did not convert out of like, what, 13 or so. Uh, and that part even not convert because of, um, to begin with, they didn't really have the, the, the right use cases for it. Uh, but yeah, looking at that at the end of the year, like we were like, shit, like this is, this is real. Like the PMF just like speaks for itself. And then the, the following year, like,
with all those customers that had the pilot the year before and then started paying for the product, they had their renewal like of their first year contract. And in that year, we had 130% plus net renewal rate in terms of dollar retention. Whoa. Which so was like again, yeah. Yeah, uh, so when you're looking at zero churn, you know you found product market fit. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> because, like, especially with annual contracts, it could be kind of scary, right? Everyone is coming up to renew. What's going to happen? And then yeah. everyone actually renew. And, and to me, those two metrics, I mean, there are some other things to look at as well, like sales yield, like basically how much you spend in to get a customer. Uh, but from the like stickiness of the product, I think like the first two metrics to look at is conversion of your free pilots and your renewal rates uh, before you make conclusions about your PMF. Like you need to have the data speak for itself, um, and it, it's very you know unbiased you know metric. Like are they renewing or not? Are they converting or not? And if they are not, then like no excuses. Like something wrong with the market or the product or the pricing. Something's off. So, so how long was it your free pilot? And did you tell people up front, like, how much it would cost? Like, walk me through the process of getting people to the free pilot to convert and then to a customer. Because I think that's a strategy that many other founders should be using. Yeah, yeah. It worked really well for us, thanks to our uh, sales leader, Chris. He, he, he developed that strategy. Um, so the pilot is, uh, to begin with, it was four weeks uh, and then we realized it's a bit tight, so we increased it to six weeks now. So it's a four weeks to six weeks free pilot. We tell them the pricing in advance. We don't want to, you know, the customers get a, a big surprise at the end of the pilot. Oh, I have to pay this much. So we tell them the pricing in advance, but they don't, you know, they don't sign up to anything. There's no commitment until end of the pilot where, you know, then they can commit to a 12 months contract or not. Uh, sometimes they do sign some kind of order form. Um, before the pilot starts, but it still has an opt-out. You know, at the end of the pilot, if, if they don't want to continue, they, they, you know, they can walk away and they don't owe us anything. It's a completely free pilot, uh, which, which, which is good if you're selling to kind of uh, bigger companies because we're targeting like medium to large enterprises. So normally those people, you know, they would be in the first year, right? They would be paying somewhere in the region between like fifty to eighty k dollars. So obviously, like they need to know what the what the, what to expect after the pilot. But still, it's it's in a completely commitment free process. Makes sense. And, and how did you attract those people to to do the free pilot? Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, we, we we're still experimenting with. But historically, for us, just outbound approach produce the most leads. You know, we have some people who send emails, LinkedIn messages, phone calls to our target list of customers, and they get them interested in trying out the product. That's like our number one source of leads, just pure outbound. Uh, then there were some, there were customer referrals, uh, some that were inbound based on, I don't know, them searching for our product, um, and a bit of partnerships too. Uh, I think moving forward, um, this might change. I don't know, but this might change moving forward. Outbound is probably harder to scale, might get some results initially, but much harder to scale with something like partners. Much easier. You onboard like one really successful partners and they can bring you on you know, five, 10 customers a year and you don't have to do anything, right? I mean, yeah, of course you have to spend some time with them, but generally there's no effort per customer. Makes sense. Yeah. But but I, I see, I hear that a lot. A lot of startups, they start with outbound because you know exactly who you're targeting. 
it's not super expensive. And then you, from there, you have to figure out your strategy because, like you say, it's going to be hard to, to keep scaling that. Um, so if you could go back in time and, and meet yourself from the day you start this company and tell you something, what would you tell yourself? Read uh, Crossing the Chasm book. That would be number one. <laughs> Uh, number two, focus on the desperate customers who are losing their sleep over this. Uh, number three is um, raise money when you really need this. Makes sense. Yeah, those, those are great advice, not only for yourself, but also for everyone listening. But I like to ask in that sense, because when you're freaking about yourself, not like the other, you like really yeah. answer the question. And so how does... The company look like today, if you could share a little bit about the size, where you guys are, and, and what the future look like for you guys. Yeah, I mean, uh, so we, we had those amazing metrics when it comes to renewals, the part conversions, we had 100% growth in our ARR. Uh, and the next step for us is to figure out the, the growth channel, basically to your previous question, like how do we get those pilots? Um, historically been a mixture of channels moving forward again before we're going to raise a ton of money next time um i want to have a data-driven analysis to tell us you know what when we increase our span on outbound by x or marketing or partners we get back an increase in y in number of meetings a very clear relationship between you know, investment and what we get back um, and for that, you know, we need to experiment with a few things. We've been break even for the last like year and a half uh, with, with about like, 25 people on the team. Um, but uh, to experiment with a lot more strategies um, and to experiment faster, uh, you know, we're raising some money right now, like a small like, three million round to, to just experiment with those things and quickly figure things out. Um, and then once we have the growth channel figured out, I think that's the time when you can raise a ton of money to just you know, hyper grow. You know, PMF is great, uh, but before I think you can like have amazing growth, you also need to have a very solid growth channel for that PMF. And that's the part that we're figuring out right now. I totally agree with that. Now you know, who needs your product and, and how, what problem yeah. do you solve? You have to figure out how I get a lot of those people very quickly exactly. where I can just put money and get more of them. Uh, that, that's been an amazing story. I love uh, the story of your SaaS and, and, and how much you guys grew and, and the learning. And I think it's like very real. It's, everyone goes through, through the processes that, that you walk through. It's not like day one and you're successful. You have to learn. Uh, I. Thank you very much for, for your time today. I really enjoy talking to you. Uh, and pe if people want to follow you or, or learn more about you, is there a place that they can find you? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just box the Mexico on LinkedIn. That would probably be the best place. Awesome. Again, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.